0: Our text this morning is from 1 Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8. It's a crucial text in the history of Israel, and as we shall see, it's a crucial text in the history of politics, in political theory. We'll look at the text under three headings. They're on the back inside page of the bulletin, the problem, the request, and the warning So first then the problem, decades have passed, Samuel is now an old man, and he had appointed his sons as judges. And verse 3 tells us that Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways. They went after dishonest gain, they took bribes, they perverted justice. So there's a clear pattern here a parallel with Eli and his sons. Eli was old. His two sons betrayed the trust of their office. They were replaced by Samuel. Samuel was old. His two sons had betrayed the trust of their office. So this is an ancient, and it's the vexing problem of succession. But the future is simply not ours to control even when we are faithful to the covenant. Both, both the permissive and passive Eli and the unblemished and godly Samuel, both men have sons who undo their work. It's a a chastening and humbling and sobering reality that Samuel, who is in the Old Testament ranked with Daniel... And Abraham and Moses has sons like this. And Eli bears a great deal of blame for his son's behavior, but Samuel is never censored for his son's actions. In fact, Samuel is still the model. If you look at this text, both the narrator, the narrator in verse 3, and the elders in verse 5, they both say, your sons did not walk in your ways. It's as if Samuel's ways are God's ways, and God's ways are Samuel's ways. It turns out that no hereditary arrangement, no covenant son born of the flesh, can guarantee Israel's future. Israel was to be a faithful son of God. Her whole history is one of failure. But for now, godly Samuel's corrupt sons provoke a new crisis in succession. That's the problem. And that brings us to the second point, which is the request that the nation makes. Right? It's seen in the, in the latter half of verse 5 where they go to Samuel and say, you know, now you're old. Don't you hate it when someone comes to you and the first thing is, now that you're old? You know? it's, you're not really inclined to listen to the request. Look, uh, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways. And they say in verse 5, appoint a king to judge us like the nations have. So there's, al- there's already a sort of irony here. No- notice, they're facing a succession crisis because it's been brought about by corrupt sons. Unfaithful children. So what do they suggest? They suggest an arrangement. Kingship, which by its very nature is hereditary and depends on the character of children, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. A king to judge us. Kingship itself is not really the issue here, because you know it, the patriarchs and Moses the book of Genesis and the book of Deuteronomy, they both foresee a future in which Israel will have a king. And the book of Judges, right before this, our text, right, in the time of a national chaos, the book of Judges keeps saying there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. And so from this point of view, it's kind of an eminently reasonable request. The issue is the motivation behind the request. The Lord, their king, had been ruling them through the judgeship of Samuel. It's clear now that Israel envisions the new relationship as replacing the current relationship of the Lord judging the nation through judges. So it's not really just a request for a new political arrangement, though it is that. This is a political manifestation of Israel's idolatry. And that's a type of idolatry which exposes the general state of the human heart. Their lust for security. Later on, a couple chapters on in the book, in chapter 12, Samuel will tell the nation that when they asked for the king, when the Lord, they asked for a king when the Lord was their king. That's the idolatry. And they did it. They did it. We're told this in chapter 12 again. They did it when they were being threatened militarily by a nearby Ammonite king. So it seems pretty clear that they thought a king like a centralized figurehead as opposed to the very messy arrangement of the judges that they had, right? The situation with the judges, very unpredictable. It's very decentralized, right? A centralized kingship would be a more effective way of defending the nation, it would relieve their anxiety. I mean, think of the situation where you're governed by judges. There's no standing army. Right? No, the, there's no succession or continuity plan. There's no cohesion. You have a charismatic leader raised up ad hoc, whenever God might raise one up. One's raised up over here, Forty-six years later, another one's raised up over there. We don't know when. We don't know where. When these leaders are raised up, they have no power to tax. They have no power to draft. It's an anxiety-producing situation. It reminds me a little bit of what some of the colonists must have felt when they wanted to move from the Articles of Confederation to to more centralized power in the Constitution. The Articles just weren't sufficient to ease everyone's anxiety, to get things done. And in this anxiety, deeply understandable anxiety, by the way, I think, they had forgotten and rejected the Lord as king. They wanted a king, but notice, a king like all the nations. The surrounding Canaanite states had kings. There were empires to the south, and to the east of Israel, they had kings. Israel wants to be like their neighbors. But for her, this is insidious. It amounts to saying, we're tired of being Israel. She's a holy nation, uniquely set apart in God's plan and purpose to be a light to the nations. And So when you do this, rejecting God as king It's a rejection of her status as the elect nation, the one people in all the earth, in covenant with the Lord God. But we should not minimize the temptation. I talked last week about how appealing these religions in the land would be. But even politically here, Israel sees the prestige and the power and the efficiency of these regional monarchies, and she wants that. She does not want this calling to be fundamentally unlike the nations. She does not want this difficult and unique calling. And so she makes this request, and it displeases Samuel. And he prays to the Lord. And it's during this portion of the text that it becomes clear that this request, which again could by itself look innocent, is in fact a rejection of God as king. The text is surprising. If you're reading along in this text and you haven't read it for a while, there are some things that happen that cause you to scratch your head. The Lord surprisingly tells Samuel, obey the voice of the people. Listen to them. There's a kind of divine concession. A kind of divine self-limitation, if you will which actually makes room for human politics. And I'll come back to that later. This is not God capitulating to political expedience. The text is going to make it plain. This is a judgment. Much like in Romans 1, the wrath of God consists largely in just giving men over to what they want. To letting them go. And so here God grants Israel's request, but it's granted at their peril. Right? The main point which the Lord makes explicit, he says it now, is in verse 7. They have rejected his kingship over them. As they've been doing, the Lord says, all the way since the day of the Exodus. This is their old idolatry with a new twist, a new lust for political trendiness. This very same nation, this very same people would later say to Jesus, a faithful son, by the way, we have no king over us but Caesar. We will not have this man to reign over us. So Samuel told, listen to the people. But he's also to warn them solemnly about the ways of the king who will reign over them. So rejecting God as king does not mean one escapes his rule. In rejecting his gracious rule, they will know him as the king who shall ironically judge them and judge them severely through the very monarchy that they have chosen. In rejecting God as king, one does not escape his rule. And the third point, which the, the, the lion's share of the text is about, is the warning. So it's verse 10 says the people were asking him for a king. It's as if they were making the request sort of semi regularly in a repeated way. But there's an ironic wordplay here on the word asking. Right? You'll remember this. Hannah named her baby Samuel because she asked for him from the Lord. Israel is asking as well, and they are going to get Saul. And after they get Saul, they're going to get a whole line of largely corrupt and oppressive kings. Be careful what you ask for. The Lord may just give it to you. So this asking and God's concession, God's giving it, as I said, opens a space for a politics which is really human. This is a massive break with the ancient Near Eastern world where the monarchy was considered divine. The monarchy was unquestionable. It was just built into the cosmos. It was a force of nature. All the the action of nature was mediated through the king. The king was God. God. The alternative in Israel was that God is the king. In one sense, there were two kinds of politics. One where the king is God, one where God is the king. But here, God is creating a third option. In granting their request, he says, look, you can have a king. But something new happens here. The king and the monarchy can be criticized. They can be viewed as historical, as a human choice. And that's what happens here. And you would not get this unless you wanted to be executed anywhere else in this world. Beginning at verse 11, from the mouth of Samuel, we have a diatribe against the monarchy. That's why this text is so important in the history of politics. This is an unprecedented thing. right? This is a 3,000-year-old challenge to the divine right of kings. You don't need the Enlightenment to challenge the divine right of kings. You need the book of Samuel. And it's a blistering attack on centralized, bureaucratic, militarized power. And yet there is no abuse in the text, no abuse here which is not exceeded by virtually every modern nation state. What is here in this text viewed as an appalling, oppressive judgment is just a yawn right for the citizens of the bloated, bureaucratic, intrusive, hyper-regulating monster states of the West. The diatribe begins in verse 11. This is what the king will claim as his right. There's another play on words here. You want a king? You think it's just that you get a king? This is the justice you will get from the king. And in beginning in verse 11, you get this repeated refrain. It's almost like a liturgical refrain. He will take, right? Verse 12, 13, he will take, 14, he will take, 15, he will take, 16, he will take, verse 17, he will take. This is what states do they take, they create nothing, they must extract in order to give. And then celebrate their compassion with other people's money. Along the way enriching the ruling class. It is of the nature of states to take. It's not like they manufacture products. Eli's sons took from the offerings of the people. Samuel's sons took bribes. And now your asked for king will take with a vengeance. First. First, there will be conscription, a mandatory draft. The text says he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. This is is the royal guard. After all, you need an army of secret service officers. How else can you have a presidential motorcade? He'll also take your sons to be his horsemen, his cavalry, and to run before his chariots. So, you want to be a military power like the nations? Be ready to give your sons up in the service of the monarchy, which entails being ready, Samuel says, to bury a whole bunch of them. The first thing, right, the first thing that aspiring players on the world stage need to create is military might. And it's rarely the sons of the privileged elite who get conscripted, much less killed. You do get a nice air show at Stewart, though, every August. And you get those flyovers at the NFL games. Those are impressive. Verse 12. He will appoint the commanders of thousands and fifties. He needs a professional officer corps. right? This king, by the way, is great for the economy. At least the local Jerusalem economy. The D.C. economy. Fantastic for that. He will appoint some to plow his ground and reap his harvest. Right? He's big on infrastructure spending. After all, the king needs large tracts of land for his family and his friends and his allies and for the maintenance of his lifestyle. It's like an ancient department of agriculture. And, of course, the text goes on to say there's going to have to be swarms of people that make his weapons of war and the equipment of his chariots. Little Semitic Boeing companies and Raytheons. This is the hideous enterprise of turning plowshares into swords, which every state requires and subsidizes. So the military-industrial complex, it predates Eisenhower by 3,000 years. It's in the DNA of nation-states. And Samuel knows it. Verse 13, he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Because the royal residents must have the best. How else are you going to host a state dinner? And having taken the fruit of the womb, he's already taken your sons and he's taking your daughters. In verse 14, he moves to expropriate your land. He doesn't just want the mediocre land. He will take, the text says, the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards. I mean, you'll get a nice national park system out of it, I'm sure. Some place where you can go have a picnic. And all of these states eventually, eventually at least implicitly, they lay claim to all the land. Right? They let you live on it, of course, if you pay your tribute in land taxes. The power to tax land is simply a way of saying that we, and not you, are the real owners of the land. The earth is the state's and the fullness thereof. And all of this prime land is to be given, you see this at the end of verse 14, to the king's servants. That is to the cogs in the royal bureaucracy, which never shrinks but always grows. This is a remarkable speech, as I said, in the context of the history of the world. I'm reading a book right now uh, by two Jewish scholars at NYU. And it's called The Beginning of Politics. And the subtitle is Power in the Book of Samuel. And they single out this text as a break in the whole history of world politics. So, verse 15 goes on and says, He will take a tenth. He will take the tithe of your grain and vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. All will pay what is seen here as an appalling 10% tax on the fruit of their land. And so, it's clear here that the state will play God. It will compete for and demand that the tithe be given to it and not to God. Only here, you know, the modern state's rhetoric of investing and stimulating, that's not available for cover. The money goes to the officers and to the servants of the state. There's not even the pretension here that the money is going to go to the needy, it goes to bureaucrats. So Israel has just requested, and they are about to receive a central taxing authority. In case you don't know, right, Samuel does not think this is a good thing. He will take your male and female servants, he goes on to say, the best of your cattle and donkeys. So he's not only going to tax your labor, he will suck up the pool of cheap labor for the menial and expansive tasks of the state. He will take the animals as well, since they're the engines of field labor in this culture. This is confiscating the means of production from the people. And in verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks, again another tithe. So he will take, and he will take, and he will take. And the results, the climax of the speech, comes at the end of verse 17. You will become his slaves so you don't like the political anxiety of this decentralized system of judges the end result here will be slavery the monarchy will be a new pharaoh a means by which Israel is constantly brought under Egyptian like bondage and this is made clear in verse 18 in that day Israel will cry out because notice the biting irony here it's seen maybe more clearly in the ESV because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. Your king, you have chosen for yourself. Here, the king is not a god, not a feature of the cosmos. But you won't be heard, the text goes on to say. The Lord will not answer the cry from the depth of this self imposed statist bondage. You have went from being free citizens to being groveling slaves. And so what happens? It's an interesting text, right? You can read the whole history of the monarchy. You can read 500 years of Israelite history in light of this text. This, This oppression begins under David. It comes to a head under Solomon who had forced labor policies and excessive taxation policies which led to his son being rejected and the nation splitting. But these become, with just a few exceptions, there's a couple exceptions, but that becomes the general qualities of the monarchy for 500 years. As a whole, the whole thing's a disaster. And there'll be no deliverance from this oppression, none, until by means of the Babylonian exile. Right, All the royal bastions, the palaces, the city, the land are laid waste and reduced to rubble. That's when the monarchy will end and stop oppressing Israel. 587 B.C. And here, you're at about 1050 B.C. And so amazingly, after this speech, the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. There's something in the soul (laughs) which likes the state, the paternalistic state, the deeply caring, providing state. In fact, Israel moves from a request to a demand in the second half of verse 19. Here's their response to this speech. No, we want a king to reign over us. The self-governing stuff is too hard. And the reason is given again, that we may be like all the nations. We want him to go out, they say, and fight our battles. The Lord used to do that. He was the warrior king. But they think now, even in the face of this diatribe, the Lord can be replaced. So I'm going to close with three points here briefly. They're they're going to be called the state, the church, and the king. So first, the state. This is a critical text in fashioning a biblical political theory. And I don't see how anything but a profound skepticism right, about centralized, militarized power can be gleaned from it. At the very least, it's a text which says people should be critical about the ambiguities and about the dangers at the very root of this kind of power. Certainly, that's part of our tradition in the West, right? The framers, you read the Federalist Papers, the framers are very aware of this problem. Madison, in Federalist 51, this is a famous quote from Madison, but let me read it to you. Here's the problem. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on a government would be necessary. In framing a government, which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. This is the deep human theological problem with government in general, and especially with kingship or centralized government. And we ought to note that the scale of centralized power here is modest by modern comparisons. What do you have when all is said and done? You have an army, which has industrial tech industry support. You have a a well-fed and cared-for political class. You have some tracts of federal land taken from the public. You have a slew of bureaucratic servants. You have a 10% tax on grain and flocks. Right? The, the modern country of Greece would call this an austerity state. Right? All governments, but especially modern ones, are dangerous. There's a danger here. There's something volatile. Because they've either been given or they've seized the most vigorous, robust powers that can be placed in human hands. Right, this is what Madison's getting at. They have a monopoly on sanctioned violence, what we call the power of the sword. Whether they have it hereditarily or they have it by consent, they can do things that should a private citizen do them, we would be thought of as monsters. They can take your money and your property and your privacy and your freedom and your life, which is why Scripture tends to view states, perhaps not exclusively, but largely, basically as negative institutions. Temporary institutions, necessary in the light of the fall, but which will be unnecessary in the eschaton. On the other hand, they view themselves, and Samuel hints at this, right? They view themselves as the messianic architects of the future. There are two contrasting conceptions. The state was and is, and according to Revelation, the book of Revelation, shall be history's chief institutional enemy to the kingdom of God. Yes, corporations can be complicit, and yes, corporations can be corrupt, but corporations do not wield the power of the sword. Corporations do not kill 100 million people in the wars of the 20th century. wary of this kind of power. Paul says the rulers of this age are being emptied out, nullified, coming to nothing. Second, then, is the church. It's very easy to laugh at Israel's folly and their stubbornness here, but we do something analogous to this today in churches where there's a constant lust for new gimmicks and devices and methods and successful techniques. New ways of effectively doing church, new innovations borrowed from the business world, new administrative techniques—all of which are supposed to help the church in the fulfillment of her mission. Trusting, trusting, as our confession says, that everything. Now, these were—I'm going to paraphrase them there—but they're from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which which is our doctrinal standards, subordinate to Scripture. But listen to this. The confession says everything, everything necessary for faith and godliness is expressly set down or else deduced from Scripture. Well, that's pretty boring. We, certainly, we need more than that. Word. Sacraments and prayer, our confessions say, are the ordinary outward means by which God applies his redemption to the world. Word, sacrament, prayer. That's it? Yep, that's it. Like the lust to be like the nations, to be a church like the other churches. We want this because all the other churches have it. That's still alive and well. Finally, the king. And here we get to the gospel. Finally, the king. Even in granting the people's rebellious requests, right? God's sovereignty is not thwarted. He freely uses this monarchy. Corrupt, flawed, deeply human, right? Right? to bring forth David, also corrupt, flawed, and deeply human, but eventually to prepare for the unveiling, right, through this long and tangled and disobedient and traumatic history of Israel. It turns out that the sovereign God has indeed given us a son, unlike Eli's sons, unlike Samuel's sons, unlike the son that Israel was. And he's given us a son who could be king, who could judge us and rule over us, and who would not be a king like all the nations. Right? One who would suffer the final rejection at the hands of the same disobedient Israel and the rulers of the Roman state. Turns out, and this is it's, it's always hard to trace the ironies and the paradoxes and the twists and the turns of the biblical story, because it's always full of these surprising outcomes. It turns out that in Jesus Christ, we see that, now get this, that rejected kingship is the way God the king rules and shows his glory, right? Rejected kingship, crucified kingship by the rulers and kings of this world. Turned that cross into a throne, that rejection into the path to regal glory. Now lifted up on high, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Through then, through, not around, through, in the teeth of Israel's rejection of God as king, God in Christ becomes universal king. Who writes a story like that? Who writes that narrative? And unlike the monarchy, unlike the modern state, the yoke of this king is easy. The yoke of this king is unoppressive. His commands are not burdensome. This is a meek and a liberating reign. He is the king who is not like the rulers of the nations. And you, then... You are a chosen people, a unique people, a royal or a kingly priesthood, a holy nation. You are not to be like the other nations. Why are you that people? It's quite simple. That you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen.